Now, as you just heard our text read this morning, you might be thinking to yourself that this is a text that's about farming. But in reality, this text is about spirit, spiritual audiology or hearing. It's about hearing the Word of God and what that looks like and the different responses to God's Word and what causes those responses. Uh, now, I, I have a little bit of expertise in hearing, uh, given that I have a wife. Now, just hang with me. Uh, I, I, my wife, Carrie, uh, we got married. And uh, when we were uh, first married, I started noticing that Carrie was doing uh, something that seemed a little strange to me. We would watch a TV show, and she would slightly turn up the volume until she got to a place where it was, like, uncomfortable, right? I was thinking, this is a little bit loud. Are you messing with me? Uh, and, and then I would notice that periodically, whenever I would say something to her, she would say, I'm sorry, what did you say? Could you repeat yourself? And she started to do that more and more. Now, don't get me wrong. At first, I thought this was a great marriage life hack for me. Because as a man, you know that sometimes you say things to your wife and you just wish you got a redo, right? So I might say something uh, to the effect of like, man, Carrie, where did you put my keys? And I'm like, oh, that, that sounded like I was blaming her. I wonder if I could rephrase that better. Um, Carrie, honey, have you seen my keys anywhere lately? I don't know where I've placed them. And she would say, oh yeah, honey, here they are. And, and it just, it was great because I just felt like I could always get a redo and frame it in just such a way that when she he- heard it, she would receive it well. What we found out though is Carrie actually uh, had begun to go deaf and it was uh, a bone in her middle ear, uh, she, in her inner ear, it was called the stapes bone. Uh, it began to calcify. She had this condition called otosclerosis, and it became hard to the point where she could barely hear anymore. And they said, if we don't do anything about this, you're going to go deaf. Now, here's what's amazing. Uh, because of where technology had gotten and where medicine had gotten, they were able to create for her a prosthetic ear bone. I'm not kidding you. Like, it must have been like that small, made of titanium. And they surgically implanted that in her ear. And for the first few weeks and months after she had that guy put in, I'm telling you, she had like supersonic hearing. And all of a sudden, I wasn't as good of a husband anymore, right? Because she heard everything on the first do, and I didn't get the redo. And I was like, man, I'm so much better on my second pass. But what we found is, is that Carrie went from hardly being able to hear to being able to hear everything. You know what's interesting? During that time, at first, she thought that her hearing problem was more about my volume that I was speaking to her with than it was with her ears. And you know, we find that spiritually here in our text today. We're going to find that the real problem that Jesus is speaking to is why it is that some hear God's Word and receive it and some don't. And he says, guess what? The the problem isn't with the Word, it's with those who are hearing the Word. It's those who are listening. Now, we're right back in our series, The Amazing True Story of Jesus in Mark's Gospel. We're going to be in Mark 4, verses 1 to 20 that were just read, where we just saw Jesus confront questions about hearing. And so far in Mark, you'll, you'll notice that there have been a litany of responses to this amazing man, Jesus, right? So you'll remember that uh, there were the responses of the crowds that are pressing upon Jesus. That's why we find them in a boat trying to get away from them uh, today as the the crowds are on the shore. Uh, You have, of course, the Pharisees who are the spiritual leaders of Israel. And as they are hearing and seeing the message of Jesus, we've been told in Mark 3 so far that they sought to destroy him. And then we also found, you'll remember, 
uh, that they later said that um, we want to get rid of Jesus uh, so that people will not hear him. In fact, we believe that what's empowered this man is Satan. Uh, That is the one who has empowered Jesus. That's their response. But the disciples had to be even more perplexed as they looked at the very physical family of Jesus, as we saw last week. His very own mother and brothers, as they were looking at Jesus, thought that his next clothing purchase needed to be a straitjacket. They thought Jesus was crazy. And so as the disciples are watching these various responses to this man who has come preaching the kingdom of God, they had to be wondering, Jesus, why are people responding in so many different ways to you? Why are they not responding in faith? Well, this morning, what we'll find is is that Jesus is only speaking to people with ears this morning. Do we have any people with ears? None? Okay, we have a few. Come on, more than that. Really? Come on, everybody. I'm just making sure you're awake. All right, great. Well, if you have ears, then this message is for you this morning. Is that good? That's good news, right? It's for you. Well, this is what we find is that Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. And that's, I guess, most of us. But Jesus here, when he says that, what he is saying is, Jesus desires spiritual ears as much as physical ears. So you need physical ears to hear the spiritual truths, but we need to hear with spiritual ears this morning. See, Jesus' message this morning is about who's on the inside of his kingdom, those who hear him. And here's the big idea that we're going to be unpacking throughout this message. This is the big idea. We'll see that spiritual hearing leads to spiritual fruit. True hearing, spiritual hearing, leads to spiritual fruit. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So as we begin, why don't we pray and ask God that he would give us spiritual ears to hear what he has to say. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we come before you, we are unpacking your word. God, we are unfolding what you have said to us. We are listening again. And Father, we pray that you would give us not just physical ears to hear this, but spiritual ears, that we might see and believe and understand and know and be changed forever. God, do this for the glory of your name we ask. Amen. Well, the first thing we're going to see this morning is really a difficult thing. So I'm going to ask you just to kind of come in close, uh, but I think this is an important thing if we're going to understand this text. See, what Jesus wants us to understand in an overarching way is that parables deliver both justice and mercy. He's going to explain the purpose of parables, and he says they really intend to deliver both justice and mercy. And we see that in our first 12 verses. Now, I said this last week, I'm going to remind you again, nearly a third of Jesus' speech, as he speaks in the Bible, is in the form of parables. Now, now parables can, they can mean a lot of different things, and, and they can look a lot of different ways. Uh, But usually, generally, what a parable does is it really uh, tries to come in the form of a kind of comparison between a real-life experience and a spiritual truth. And here this morning, what we receive is something that looks much like a riddle. Now just imagine for a minute that you knew somebody that a third of the things that they said to you were in riddles. Ladies, bear with me for a minute. What if you were to have a guy, a man, pursuing you? A handsome man, a well-established man, a godly man, and yet every time he spoke to you, he only spoke to you in riddles. Everything he said began with something like this, riddle me this, riddle me this, riddle me that. Don't you think at some point you'd be like, you know, I don't care how handsome you are, it's kind of getting on my nerves. Will you just speak 
plainly to me. Now, some of you women probably think, I think men only speak in riddles. The reality is we're a lot more simple than that most days, right? But if you had a man that was speaking to you in that way, you'd probably question both his intentions and his sanity. And that's what Jesus does. As he's on this boat with a number of people standing in the boat with him, speaking to a crowd upon the shore, you have this visible image again of insiders and outsiders. And he begins to unfold this this riddle about farming. They've come to hear about the kingdom of God, to see a miracle, to see a demon cast out. And he says, let me tell you a story about a farmer who cast out seed. Now you can imagine that the disciples were a little perplexed, disappointed, as much as those on the shore. Like, why in the world would he share this, this parable? Why wouldn't he just speak clearly and plainly about who he is? Well, in verses 4 to 9 that we just read, you saw that he unfolded this parable about sowing seed. Seems very general. And that's the parable. But in verse 10, the disciples, they seem confused as well. And they're inside the boat. And they said, you know, I know that these parables are for, you know, some kind of purpose, but I'm in the boat and I don't understand what you're talking about. I want to support you, but could you explain to us a little bit about these parables? And it's in the midst of that that we find that Jesus quotes Isaiah 6 to explain his use of parables. And catch what he, he does, how he explains it in verses 10 to 12. Look there with me. This is how he explains his use of this parable and parables in general. He says, And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that they may indeed see, but not, not perceive. And may hear, but, but not, not understand. Lest they should turn and be forgiven. So, so check this out. Jesus quotes Isaiah 6 to explain the purpose of parables both in general and I believe it also explains this specific parable. So first, look at this parable in general. Uh, why would he quote Isaiah 6 here to describe parables? Well, let's think about what, I, what happens in Isaiah 6. Uh, you'll remember in Isaiah 6, uh, it has been prefaced by five chapters of God basically telling Israel and their leadership about how they have been unfaithful. And he is progressively exposing that. He says that you have been idolatrous. Uh, You have had bad cultic practices. Your religion has not been good. Uh, And and in addition to that, what we find is is that uh, you have been more self-reliant than God-reliant, which is, of course, all idolatry. Now, when you think about idolatry in the Old Testament, what you know is, is that the way that it is often explained is, is that uh, the gods of the nations are false gods, and God is often mocking them as gods who cannot see, and they cannot hear. Uh, They are deaf, and they are dumb, and they are blind. And those who follow those kinds of gods become deaf, blind guides, right? They can't see. Now you can imagine how this is completely different than the omniscient omnipresent God who hears all and sees all, right? These gods are nothing like the true God, the God who actually gives vision and sight so that his people can flourish. He says these gods are nothing like that. And in Isaiah 6, what we find is, 
is that while they are following these idols who are really no gods, uh, he says, I, I want you to know that these are standing in stark contrast to me, the true and living God who sees all things and hears all things and who speaks words of life and hope. But Israel's leaders have continuously rejected God's word up to this point. When God gives Isaiah this magnificent vision of God himself enthroned in heaven, high and lifted up, enthroned with all about him angels who were declaring his glory. What a vision before these folks who have been blind and have not been able to hear this majestic sight of God, the Lord of glory. And we are told in Isaiah 6 that after Isaiah receives this glorious vision, in the midst of all of this failure, God asks who will go for him, and Isaiah says, here am I, send me. I want to go on this mission. I want to speak for you. What an exciting mission. And then God says, okay, here's what I want you to tell them. And here's where it gets strange. He says, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on Seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then Isaiah said, How long, O Lord? How long do I have to do this? And he said, Until cities lie waste. And then verse 13 He goes on to say, though a tenth remain after this devastating destruction, it will be burned again, leaving a stump. And Isaiah ends saying, the holy seed is its stump. Now, I I know this sounds discouraging and disparaging, but let me tell you, there is great hope in the stump here. There's great hope in this seed. See, I, I believe that this speaks of Assyria who would come and take Israel away. And then later, Babylon would come and take Judah away. And that would be the burning and the reburning. But eventually, we would be left with one instead of many. And that one would, of course, be this stump. And we're told later in Isaiah that out of this stump would come a shoot from the line of Jesse. Now, who's Jesse? Well, he's the father of David. And so there's this seed that's going to come from the line of David that's going to bring hope to Israel. Of course, I believe that we learn a lot here about what's going on. See, I take it that Jesus is the holy seed and that that is the stump that Isaiah saw and hoped in. Now, Mark 4, I think, he, I think it shares three important parallels with Isaiah 6, okay? This is where I'm going. I think Mark 4 shares at least three important parallels with Isaiah 6 that explain what Jesus means by quoting Isaiah here to explain his use of parables. First, uh, notice that just as Israel rejected Yahweh's kingship in the first five chapters of Isaiah, Jewish leaders have been rejecting uh, Jesus' ministry since Mark 2. See, both Isaiah and, and Jesus emerge in the context of a people, leaders, who are rejecting continuously the word of the Lord. Just in, uh, just in Mark 3, we saw the Pharisees had allied to the worldly Herodians to destroy Jesus and even credited Jesus' power to Satan, the prince of this world. Do you see it? The leaders of the people of God have become worldly. And then second, we see that Isaiah's parable represented Yahweh's judicial response for those already 
turning a deaf ear to God's reign. Just as Jesus' parables presented judgment towards the religious leaders who rejected Jesus and the kingdom of God. You see it? There's, there's judgment that's coming into those who are not receiving the kingdom of God. Now, I know that some may read this. And as you read it, you might think to yourself that Jesus is saying that the purpose of His parables is actually to harden the non-elect. Now, I don't have a lot of time to deal with this here. And maybe that, that's what this means. Maybe that's true, but I don't think that that's the point here. See, the point here in context seems to be that those who have already hardened their hearts towards Jesus' preaching and His miracles which they saw with their own eyes and heard with their own ears will only be hardened more through these parables. In other words, there's already been a disposition of heart towards God and His Word that has said we are, resistance against, we are resistant against it. And so I think there's an important lesson here that we need to look at briefly, and that's this, that spiritual deafness grows as their hearts harden towards Jesus. In other words, spiritual, spiritual deafness, it can grow. It's not like you get to a point where you're as spiritual de- spiritually deaf as you'll ever, ever become. Uh, you can become increasingly deaf to the goodness of Christ if you continue to push Him off. And third, we see this parallel, that Jesus is Isaiah's stump-like seed. Now, I, I think that more study needs to be done here, but I find it fascinating that Isaiah 6.13 ends, catch this, he ends with Israel's hope after destruction coming in the form of a seed. And Jesus quotes Isaiah 6 from the same text in Mark 4 in a context about a a sower going out and sowing seed. Isn't that interesting? Like one text ends with the hope of a seed. Jesus begins with a sower of seed. And we know that Jesus is the shoot that springs up out of the stump. Jesse, father of King David, the seed who has come to usher in the kingdom of God. So people's response to Jesus, like the parables, reveals those who are inside the kingdom and who are outside. See, insiders receive mercy, and outsiders receive the judgment of God. But in either case, know this for sure, God's Word never fails. It never fails. I think it's important before we move on just to notice that. God's Word always does what God's Word intends to do. You'll remember that famous text in Isaiah 55.11, where He tells us, or God Himself says, My word shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Brothers and sisters, don't miss this. God's word, it never fails. Now, it might feel like it does, right? I mean, how many of you have ever felt like God's word failed you? Uh, You've experienced that wrestling of the heart amidst suffering or loss or amidst desires that are unmet. There's a time in which you feel like maybe God's Word has failed. But praise be to God that our feelings are not the Lord of our lives. See, we have something better. We have a King, and and our King is Jesus. And what we know is, is that in our Bibles, we have the very words of God that always come with God's powerful presence and His personal being powerfully expressed in and through us. And our response to that Word is critical. So why does it feel like the Word fails. Well, friends, it doesn't. Brothers and sisters, God's Word never fails. John Frame, he, he says this. 
the power of the Word brings wonderful blessings to those who hear it in faith and with a a disposition to obey. But it hardens those who hear it with indifference, resistance, and rebellion. For those hearing and studying the Word regularly, it is so important that they hear in faith lest the Word actually harden their hearts and become a fire of judgment to them. See, God's Word never leaves us the same. We hear it for better or for worse. See, God's powerful Word, it it never returns void. As Charles Spurgeon said, uh, the same sun which melts wax hardens clay. Two different responses to the same heat. And the same Gospel which melts some persons to repentance and faith hardens others in their sins. Now don't miss this. Spiritual deafness grows with repeated resistance to the Gospel. And God's powerful Word can be imperceptible in its workings. You might not see it. You might not feel it. And you often don't see how God's Word is affecting the inner workings of our hearts and the hearts of others, right? Like God's doing stuff even when you don't see it. It both hardens some and softens others. I think that's the point that that Jesus wants us to understand from Isaiah in this text. It really is a text about what has happened to Jewish leaders because they have continued to resist the Word of the Lord until their hearts have become hard to the Gospel. But there's a second thing that we see here. And that is, we see three seeds fly and die and one that survives and thrives. Three seeds fly and die and then one seed survives and thrives. See that in verses 13 to 20. Now here's where Jesus moves from the parables in general to this specific parable explaining the diverse responses to the hearing of the good news of the kingdom. Now this is really more about the soils than it is the seeds, right? I mean, uh, it seems to be that it's really one seed that's going out and it's different soils or grounds that are receiving it. The seed, I believe, represents the message of Christ delivered to a person. That's the seed. Uh, And and the soil, it describes whether or not the gospel truly takes root in the person causing them to hear it both physically and spiritually. So the first three fly and die, and the third survives and thrives, displaying true faith. Uh, Let's look at each one of those. First, look at the bird food. Did you notice the bird food? It's both in verse 4 and verses 4 to 15. See, verses 4 to 15 show us an important lesson, and that's this, that physical hearing is no protection against spiritual deafness. Physical hearing is no protection against spiritual deafness. Many, many heard the Word of God actually preached from the voice of Jesus Himself and rejected it. And Jesus explains that here in verses 14 to 15. He says, the sower sows the Word. And these are the ones along the path where the Word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the Word that is sown in them. Did you notice that? That Satan immediately takes away the Word once heard. And don't miss this. When you are listening to preaching, like you're doing right now, or when you are attending a women's Bible study class, or taking part in one of our Sunday school classes, You, my friend, you are standing on a spiritual battleground between heaven and hell. It's really the prequel to Armageddon. 
You might not feel that way with a pencil in hand, taking notes, trying to drink enough coffee to keep your mind stimulated. But you are actually in the middle of a battleground according to this word, right? Satan is looking to swoop in and take the word away as quick as possible, right? It's both in regeneration with a new believer that needs to come to faith for the first time and a continuous war that we war against, which is not against flesh and blood. See, we need to be vigilant and aware of what's going on when we are hitting the room to hear about God's word and listen to his word and be changed by it. When you are teaching children's Sunday school, a place where you're surrounded by little toddlers, perhaps little girls with dresses with strawberries on them, right in the midst of that, Satan is firing up his air force to strip you of hearing the word. He is attacking children. He doesn't want them to receive and hear and believe the gospel and be changed from someone who is part of a possession of the forces of Satan into a child of God. He understands the danger of little hearts that turn in faith to Jesus. And he doesn't worry about age. He's non-discriminatory in his attacks. He wants to keep us from hearing from him. See, boredom. Boredom isn't your worst enemy when you are listening to God's word. It's not. Maybe you're thinking you're morning. I need to. I need to fight boredom this morning. Boredom is not the enemy Satan is. Like that's your biggest enemy when you're trying to listen. Boredom, an instrument, a tool, a weapon in the hand of Satan. But he is not your great enemy. See, boredom is a consequence of us. It is not the thing that we are warring against. See, listening to God's word is spiritual warfare. That's why we are told that the spiritual sword of the spirit is the word of God. We are at war when we are in our words and when we join together around God's word. And only that can explain people rejecting Jesus' preaching, right? I mean, it's one thing if somebody rejects my preaching or your witness. But how do you explain somebody hearing Jesus himself preaching the gospel and they're like, I don't like it, I want to kill him. There's something going on here that is much more than a physical war. There's something spiritual that is happening. Only that can explain people rejecting Jesus' preaching. God's word is, we are told, as precious as gold and sweet as honey. Could it be this morning that the reason that you struggle to hear God's word isn't a problem with the honey, but with your taste buds? Could it be this morning that the reason that you don't value God's word and get excited about it isn't because of the word of God being deficient but our hearts being broken. Brothers and sisters, we need to warm our hearts towards the Gospel and towards God's Word. Could it be this morning that our physical ears are dull of hearing because our spiritual hearts are hard as rocks? Could it be that the soil of our heart is so hard that it's too easy for Satan to take God's Word away from it? Friends, our hearts need to be softened to the Word of God. But there's a second kind of seed that we learn from here, and that's the sun-cooked seed. Did you notice that? Uh, We're told about this in verses 5 to 6 and 6 to 17. Verses 5 to 6 and verses 6 to 17. Uh, You'll notice in verses 6 to 17 that we are shown that physical suffering can cause and reveal spiritual deafness. Hear me again. Physical suffering can cause and even reveal spiritual deafness. Here's how Jesus says it in verse 16. He says, And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who when they hear the word, immediately receive it 
with joy. That's good. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. And then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the Word, immediately they fall away. That's bad. See, this is scary. These are those whose first response to the Gospel is joy. And there's no better response, more appropriate response to hearing God's Word the good news of the kingdom. There is no better news than that news. And so you you ought to respond with joy when you hear that. But here what we find is, is that it is followed by another response. See, when tribulation or persecution comes on account of the Word, they immediately fall away. Now, let me just say this. If you are a child of God, you've put your faith in Him, you, you are following Him with your life, you can expect that Satan will tempt you to despair in all sorts of ways. And it is always on account of the Word. Because Jesus is the Word and you are His children. And and if you are in Christ, and you can bet that Satan is all about using multifaceted ways to, in some ways, wedge your heart away from God. See, Satan will use all kinds of things. He will use persecution for your faith. Like you see in Iran, where Christians are being killed as the church grows. He could bring diabetes or cancer. He could bring fibromyalgia your way. So that you have a physical distress that that begins to, to pull you away from trusting in God's Word. He might take the life of your spouse and he may even take your child. Satan will do all of those things. And it's in those moments, the authenticity of your faith will be tested to see whether or not it is truly rooted in Christ. Do you really trust God? That's the question of the moment amidst suffering. Do we really trust God? Do we believe Him? Do we take Him at His Word? You know, new believers and young believers, I, I want you to hear this. Let me just warn you, if you're a recent convert or you're a young believer, let me just warn you that that God's children will usually suffer in this life. Suffering will come your way. If you've not experienced it yet, I promise you that it is likely coming. Hear this from from Peter, because I don't want you to be surprised. Peter, who you'll remember Mark used him for this gospel, he says this. He says in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Have you ever experienced older Christians, Christians of a while, have you ever experienced a kind of suffering that it hits you and it hits you like a ton of bricks and it feels completely strange? You know what I'm talking about? Like, you're just surprised about the degree of suffering that you're experiencing. And you're wondering, how can a good God who loves me let that happen? Friends, that's who Peter's speaking to. He's saying, I know that you think this is strange. It's not strange. You have to remember. You remember that you are sharing in Christ's sufferings. Christ, the eternal Son of God, who had the eternal love of the Father on Him from before creation began, from eternity's past, who within, there is no similar love. There is no love that equates to the love that the Father has for the Son. And yet, He suffered. 
See, that's the message that Peter has. You, you are no better than your master, than the Jesus that you follow. You will suffer like him. And not only that, you are sharing in Christ's sufferings. Don't go deaf to the word of God and its sufferings as though something strange were happening to you. See, I think there's a reason that the symbol of Christianity is a cross and not a couch. It's because we understand that suffering will follow those who follow Jesus in this life. And and brothers and sisters, I believe this is where the prosperity gospel fails. See, the prosperity gospel says that if you fail in this life, or you are lacking, it is for a deficient faith. So you don't name it and claim it. That's your problem. Friends, hear me. So much of Christianity... It's really about the joy that is set before us and the joy that is brought to us from heaven amidst suffering in Christ so that we experience something otherworldly. Can I just tell you, I really believe that there is a special grace that is given to those who suffer well in the face of tribulation for the honor and glory of Christ. I believe those brothers and sisters know Jesus just a little bit more than I do. I believe they draw a little bit closer to the face of God in this life until we go to heaven because of the sufferings that help them share in a unique way in Christ. Now, some of the best theologians are those who have suffered in the past. And so, so much of Christianity is really about the joy that is set before us. And all joys in this life are mere shadows and echoes of the great hope that awaits us when Christ's glory is revealed. Young Christian, do not settle for the joys of this world. The joys that are awaiting you are so much better. Just wait. See, authentic faith perseveres to the end. Those who hear, persevere. And the journey will have ups and downs, but the trajectory will always rise to heaven. There's a third kind that we see here, and that's the weed choked. In verses 7 and 18 to 19. Verses 7 and 18 to 19. See, these verses show that spiritual deafness increases with a love for the world. Spiritual deafness, it increases with a love for the world. Notice what Jesus says. He says in verse 18, and others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. I know that you've heard that it's near impossible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God, right? Uh, It's about as likely as you taking a camel and threading it through the eye of a needle. Very unlikely that a rich person, very difficult for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. It's it's really difficult. This may be the most, here, the most pervasive, subtle, and dangerous situation, even more so than the rest. See, this, hear me, it may be the most pervasive subtle, and dangerous seed experience for us as Americans. We've talked before about consumerism that drives our culture. A consumerism that drives us promising that true and lasting joy will only be found in us accumulating more stuff. That's where the hope is, if you can just get a little bit more. And it wasn't really the notorious big, uh, the notorious B.I.G. that originally first noticed that this is a problem, right? More money, more problems. Like if you follow consumerism to the end, you're going to have more and more problems. It's not a good thing. It's a tough thing. It's a bad thing. In fact, he writes in that song, I don't know what they, the world around me, wants from me. 
It's like the more money we come across, the more problems we see. See, that's a non-Christian saying, I just don't think more stuff. More is the answer. And I think that's even more true spiritually than it is physically, because please hear me. Wealth, success, and the issues of life are not the cause of sin. Money's not a bad thing to have. Success, not bad. All blessings from the Lord. But they are an occasion of sin that we need to be careful about. It's what our hearts do with these things that we need to be careful of. I really believe that wealth and success and power, I think all of them should come with a warning label, like you'll find on movies and CDs. It says, caution. These things have been known to choke people to death, right? Like spiritually, watch out. So often we celebrate those who are successful. We, 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 we praise them, we get excited for them when success hits their way. And it's good because it's a blessing from the Lord, but we also ought to drop to our knees for folks who've experienced success, knowing that they might get choked out, right? We need to watch out for that. See, the possessions and the consumerism, those things are dangerous. All those things that we celebrate as Americans. So ambitious, ambitious men and women, if you have a lot of ambition and big dreams, that's a good thing. If you want to lead something great, if that's you, or, or, or if you want to write something meaningful, or you want to educate your child so they can attend an Ivy League school, or you want to retire at 50, big ambitions. Did you know studies show that the more you make, the less you give proportionally? In other words, the more that we achieve our ambitions, the more that we tend to center on ourselves rather than being generous to others. And we need to be soberly aware that the pursuit of success in this world can cause spiritual deafness. We can get so caught up in the success of this life and the victories that God is giving us that we lose sight of God. And if you don't have much, I think this text speaks to you as well. This is just as relevant for you. See, not having much can make you lust over more. You can not have much in lust over what you don't have and what others have. Guard your heart from a desire for more that screams so loudly that you can't hear the voice of God. And single folks, isn't there a message here? I mean, he does include in there the issues of life. And maybe if you're this morning, you're single, uh, you'll notice that the issues of life really pertains to you. Now, maybe uh, this morning you have become distracted from God by your desire for a spouse, the longings of your heart that really have distracted you from who God is and from pursuing Him. It has slowed you down. Uh, You're just too busy trying to find a godly wife or a godly husband to spend time in the Word and prayer. You're too busy, too busy to be able to come to church and hear the Word preached because you've got to find a spouse. And even when you're here, your thoughts are about your loneliness and God's His, His refusal to provide you with someone to love you. Now, if that's you, let me just let you know that we as elders love to pray for folks who are looking for a spouse. Uh, We even love to try to play matchmaker. That's fun for us. Not saying we're good at it, but hey, everybody likes to play, right? And so we like to find godly spouses for godly men and godly women. We love to see that happen amongst us. And we've seen a lot of that. We've seen God do great things. But let me say this this morning as as we are thinking about this. Uh, Brothers and sisters, if you are single... We want you to know that Paul says that there is a special blessing for singleness that you just might be missing out on. Not saying that it's something that you have to have all of your life, but singleness is good too. 
In fact, Paul reminds us of this, speaking to single people in 1 Corinthians 7, 28. He says, those who marry will have worldly troubles. I'm not saying anything. My wife's not here today, so I can say that. But those who, it's a word of God. Those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. I say this this morning simply to say that those who are single, uh, you're not less human, less valuable. In some ways, you are more blessed and uniquely blessed to be able to serve God in utterly unique ways. And don't forget that there is a special blessing of being able to serve God and others in unique ways when you don't have a family and the cares of a family. So getting married and having a family is a wonderful thing. But being single in the service of the Lord is a blessing too. So don't waste your singleness. Serve the Lord with gladness. And please hear me. This kind of faith that he speaks of, that is so ambitious that it lose sight of God, is fruitless. That's how it's different than the other faith that we're going to talk about. It's a fruitless faith. So maybe you can point, you can't point to anything bad from an earthly standpoint for these pursuits, but this plant produces no heavenly good. And friends, if you gain the whole world but lose your soul, you still lose. So let's not take that reality lightly. Let's pursue true faith. See, spiritual deafness is increased with the love for the world. But there's a last point, and that's this. uh, The sown-grown seed. The sown-grown seed. This is the one that's fruitful. In verses 8 and 20, we're told that this seed survives and thrives. This is those who hear the Word and bear much fruit. See, spiritual hearing here leads to spiritual fruit. That's, That's really the only way. If you really have spiritually heard God, not just physically, there will be fruit. That's the promise of the gospel. And so here's what Jesus says in verse 20. He says, But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. Thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Notice here that those who hear the word, they hear it both with their physical ears and with their spiritual hearts. So how do you know that the soil was good for growing? Well, it's It's fruitful. And this is the soul of someone who hears the gospel and believes that they are sinners before a holy and righteous God and know that they deserve God's wrath for their sins. But they also know that if they repent and they have and have believed in Christ for salvation, in King Jesus, the only good King who lived the perfect life that we didn't, who died in our place for our sins and was raised from the dead to declare that all who follow Him will be forgiven and will be fruitful. That's what a Christian is. And and catch what Jesus says. Here's how you know that that true faith in Christ has happened. That you haven't just heard about Jesus, but that you've actually grasped Jesus Himself. He says it's by this. You see fruit. Which I take to speak of fruit in a very broad sense. I think it speaks of spiritual fruit. Like the fruits of the Spirit. Love, patience, joy, kindness. uh, All of these faithfulness. All of these are evidences of the Spirit, spiritual fruits. But I think it also speaks of spiritual gifts. Like like, like teaching and serving and giving generously. Loving one another in the context of a local church. I think this is Jesus' way of saying that we are saved by faith alone, but not faith that is alone. We will see fruit in the lives of those who have truly believed. See, spiritual hearing will be accompanied by spiritual evidences. Spiritual hearing, hearing leads to spiritual fruit. But also notice that the same seed yields various positive results. Not everybody has the same fruit yield. Some are 30 and some are 60 and some are 100. In other words, it's always fruitful, uh, but it's fruitful in different ways. 
Now, if you're not a farmer, you might be thinking to yourself, why does it matter if it's 30 or 60 or 100? Like, is that really a big deal? Well, commentator James Brooks is helpful here. He says this, only one element in this parable is unusual. The superabundant harvest in verse 8 because of the primitive agricultural methods. An average harvest in ancient Palestine was probably no more than seven or eight times the amount of seed sown. And a good harvest probably was about ten. So what do you think he means whenever he says some thirty and some sixty and some a hundred? What he's saying is there is no physical explanation for the kind of spiritual fruit that you see. It is clearly a work of God. These folks that show evidences of grace, it is clear that this grace is from heaven, not from on earth. That the Lord has done something unique in the person who has truly put their faith in Jesus. And and that's why we can rejoice when we see the fruitfulness of others. Even if their fruit is more or different than us, because we know that ultimately, it's fruit come down from heaven. It's really God's work. And I hope you've seen that spiritual deafness centers on reception, not transmission. God's Word transmits perfectly. It's our reception, our ears, that need to be helped. And so how do we help our ears? Let me give you a few quick ways. Four quick ways as we go. Because maybe you're thinking, how can I receive God's Word well? How can I be better at it? Well, one is, because this is a spiritual thing, we need to pray and ask God. We need God's help if we're going to be spiritually fruitful in our lives. It begins with God. You know, if listening is a spiritual endeavor, and it is, and if Satan wars against spiritual hearing, and he does, then we need to pray that the Holy Spirit would help us to hear with more than our ears. I love what Martin Luther used to pray. Lord, teach me, teach me, teach me. You pray and ask the Lord to do that as he studied. So pray. Pray for yourself. Pray for teachers. Pray for teachers and preachers that the Holy Spirit would empower His Word to break through hard hearts and enmity with God and they might get a glimpse of the glory of Jesus who is willing and able to save and that the Holy Spirit would revive and enlighten the hearts of your brothers and sisters around you who are always in danger of being robbed of the truth, run off by tribulation, and choked out by the cares of this world. We need to pray. We need to confess and repent. We need to know that our problem with hearing has more to do with our hearts than God's words. You know, did you know that Chinese churches, house churches, meet amidst threat of persecution and losing their lives to hear the Word of God read for hours? And yet we live in a culture that we really don't want to listen to what you have to say if you can't say it in 140 characters or less. And we prefer a picture if you don't mind. I mean, we, just, we just don't have ears to hear. And we need God to come and to shape and shape our hearts and soften them to God's Word so that we might be transformed and see more fruit. Pray and ask, but confess and repent. We need to confess spiritual laziness, worldly concerns and ambitions, sin in our lives, fear amidst the sufferings of this life, and cling afresh to the hope of the Gospel that casts our attention to hope in Jesus. Get sleep. Physical tiredness can lead to spiritual deafness. I I used to play uh, tennis in college. And I didn't get a lot of sleep, but I did get a lot of sleep the night before a match because I knew I needed every ounce of sleep 
and health that I could get if I was going to compete against someone else in a tennis match. I wanted to be ready. Well, friends, I mean, the greatest glory I could have had was winning a trophy in junior college, which wasn't even close. How much more is at stake when we come to hear from the God of heaven who speaks to us words of life? How much more should we be ready when we come to hear from God? How much respect do we pay to the Word of God when we come to hear from God's Word? Do we really come ready and expectant for God? See, we need to be physically awake if we want to be spiritually revived. Some of us are just too tired for God to work a revival. But fourth, and finally, we need to be humble and expectant. See, if spiritual deafness centers more on reception than transmission, then we need to approach God's Word with humility and expectation. See, you you, you read the text to be preached before the service because you're expectant. You, You want to read and be ready to hear from God. Read the text before you come in on Sunday. We send out an email. If you don't have the email, let us know. We will send you the text and questions to help you think through the text so that when you come, you are ready to hear from God. See, you trust as you read that text that the Word of God is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Brothers and sisters, don't settle for being entertained by God's Word. Don't do it. Look to be transformed by it. If you're looking to be entertained, you'll, be, you'll leave disappointed. If you come to be transformed by it, you'll never be the same. Expect God's Word to pierce your heart and change your life. God's Gospel will do that. Let's pray.